Hello, my name is Garrison Lovely, and I'm not that interesting, but this is the most interesting people I know. Conversations on science, ethics, and politics. My guest today is Edgar Villanueva. Edgar is a globally recognized expert on social justice philanthropy. He serves as the chair of the board of directors of Native Americans in Philanthropy. Edgar currently serves as senior vice president at the Schott Foundation for Public Education, where he oversees grant investment and capacity building for education justice campaigns across the United States. Edgar is also the award-winning author of Decolonizing Wealth, a best-selling book offering hopeful and compelling alternatives to the dynamics of colonization in the philanthropic and social finance sectors. In addition to working in philanthropy for many years, he has consulted with numerous nonprofit organizations and national and global philanthropies on advancing racial equity inside of their institutions and through their investment strategies. We focus primarily on his book, specifically how he became disillusioned with the philanthropy sector, America's refusal to engage with its history of colonialism and racism, the colonizer's mindset and how it ties to contemporary philanthropy, how people of color are left out of philanthropic spending, the 5% foundation payout requirement, and why most foundation money is parked in investment accounts, a call to transfer capital back to impoverished communities, poverty in pre-colonial times, the potlatch ceremony, a challenge to the thesis of decolonizing wealth from an effective altruism perspective, the problem with the term altruism, the problems that are solved by just giving people money with no strings attached, shifting the power and choice from donors to the people they're trying to help, the ties between capitalism and white supremacy, and as always, a call to action. Near the end of the episode, we had a bit of an audio dropout. I did what I could to piece things back together and we didn't end up losing too much, but there will be a few awkward cuts. If you'd like to learn more about the book, you can visit decolonizingwealth.com. You can find Edgar on Twitter at, at Villanueva Edgar and me, as always, at Garrison Lovely. If you'd like to get in touch directly, you can DM me or email me at mostinterestingpeople27 at gmail.com. Here is Edgar Villanueva. All right, Edgar, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. So uh, you wrote a book called Decolonizing Wealth, and I actually read this as part of a book club for uh, the nonprofit that I work at, Give Directly, and I'll state up front that I'm speaking as an individual, not as an employee, um, and <laughs> these opinions are just my own. Um, and I'm sure we'll get into some relevant opinions uh, regarding philanthropy later in the episode. But um, can you just lay out like what motivated you to write this book? Absolutely. So um, I think I come from a background that's pretty unique for a person to uh, who finds themselves working in institutional philanthropy. Um, I'm from the U.S. South, um, North Carolina specifically. I'm from a very poor family. Um, I'm Native American. And so the idea of institutional philanthropy as it sort of exists as this industry was something that was pretty far, far away from my uh, reality growing up. And uh, as I got into the nonprofit sector and then found myself working in philanthropy, um, there was so much that happened in the space that was like mysterious to people. It's sort of this private club. Um, it's not very transparent. There's a lot of um, illusions <laughs> that, that, that are at play. Um, and then I, I felt for, for me, I always tried to be as direct and clear with partners as I could about the realities of philanthropy, like what it's great at, what we can do, what's possible, and what is really beyond the, the scope of what, what is, um, you know, um, 
what what's available to people. And um, so what really pushed me to write the book is that being the person that I am inside these institutions, um, I felt, you know, I had moments, honestly, of, of really painful moments where I felt um, that I was a part of an organization that didn't really align with what we said we were about on the website um, that it was really a facade in some ways, like good work was happening. We made fantastic grants to fantastic organizations, but we often had this rhetoric around being like about transformation and justice and equity in ways that didn't quite translate. And I was younger to be fair. And so, uh, you know, I was curious and I had a lot of questions and I was, you know, I set out to change the world by joining the sector and um, when I began to see and understand that, uh, in general, the philanthropic infrastructure, infrastructure um, sector, the, the sort of the industry of philanthropy is not really seriously about transformation. It's not really seriously about justice. Um, it actually rewards the status quo. And um while there is good intention behind all of it, there's so much room to grow. And so it's really that that combination of like pain that I experienced, um, uh, oppression at times as a person working in the sector, uh, combined with a real passion for justice and to see us step up and do more as a sector that led me to the place where I felt like I needed to, to speak up and tell my story. Yeah, yeah. So you do a lot of kind of going back and forth between your personal journey in philanthropy and then tying it to like larger statistics, uh, history of colonization, the racial wealth gap and, and issues like that. Um, and I think history is really important in understanding this book and just like where we are, right? Like as a country and where we are in philanthropy and, you know, anybody who's like familiar at all with us history knows it's like a settler, settler colonial project. Um, but I think probably the typical American is not as aware of how colonialism permeates to this day. Um, I think a lot of people kind of put history as like, oh, that thing that happened in the past. Um, and it's just like not obvious to them. So could you point out like some examples of how colonialism persists and, and the effects that it has to this day? Sure, absolutely. You're you're right that our the accurate history of the United States and many places around the world is, is not known or understood by the vast majority of folks. Um, some new research that just came out last year from a partner organization of mine called Illuminative um, actually found that uh, Native Americans were only mentioned in like 30 percent of history classes and in like K-12 education. So we weren't wow. even like mentioned. Like U- U.S. history classes. U.S. history classes, yes. <laughs> so, you know, there, there's been this gradual erasure um, of indigenous peoples and uh, in this country, we often say that invisibility is our new genocide. And, uh, you know, and I think that comes from a place of, you know, ignorance, but also uh, human nature, right? Like we are... Um, as human beings, often um, we, we don't want to uh, talk about negative things or bring up uh, situations from the past that are that are painful. Um, and especially if we 
feel like we might have some ownership or responsibility. It's just very, it's easier for us to like sweep things under the carpet and move forward. Um, we don't want to deal with it. In the U.S., we are um, one of the few um, country, countries that have not had a process of truth and reconciliation. Um, Canada has had one, South Africa, Germany. And so we're so far from that in this country because we, we actually don't even talk about history. So um, I think that a, a big part of the work in this book and the work that I do beyond the book is really inviting people to um, actually look back and understand history and not just my history as an indigenous person, but all of our histories, like many of us don't even know who our great grandparents were. And there, there's so much um, uh, knowledge and wisdom and, and ways of being that um, have gotten lost. Uh, we call them original instructions in my culture. Um, we've lost our original instructions that really inform us um, about who we are and how we should be showing up uh, in communities. So, um, but our history in the United States, it, it's, it's been really romanticized and, you know, we celebrate colonizers and we've twisted the stories um, to be something that is that are not real. And if you travel to Europe about two years ago, I was in Portugal and I was really kind of taken aback at like the monuments they have there of, of colonizers. But we learn in school that these folks were heroes. Right. And. Um, and it's a it's a narrative that we subscribe to and romanticize um, that, uh, you know, lands were discovered, people and cultures were discovered um, by the reality of colonization and, and what happened in our in our history here is it's, it's actually a very violent um, history. And it's uh, one that wiped out millions and millions of people through genocide and stolen land. And the way that this country actually was founded as a nation is just covered in, in blood and violence. And there's so so when we are born as a nation um, from that place, um, I believe there's something in the DNA of our country that we have to address. Um, we have in built into our way of being as Americans, um, built into our economic system, our education system, like all of these different systems that are at um, are operating in our society are just filled with like dynamics of colonization, and those dynamics are division, separation, exploitation, um, mindsets of scarcity and fear. Um, if you begin to examine any system uh, in this country or sector, you can kind of quickly begin to identify some of those behaviors or mindset that are uh, mindsets that are pervasive. Yeah. And I mean, if you don't believe that it's still with us, like look at your money and who's on it. <laughs> I mean, uh, Andrew Jackson, just like genocidal maniac <laughs> based on the history record and he's on the $20 bill. Um, and it's not that much better when you go down the list. Um, but I, I think like any, you know, person who was fortunate enough to get a good education on this or self-educated, uh, would probably acknowledge that. And I think what's less obvious is like how contemporary philanthropy ties into this. Um, so can you just detail how um, you argue contemporary philanthropy perpetuates colonialism? Sure. So a, a quick way to kind of sum that up is uh, a few questions that, uh, to consider. One is where did the wealth come from in the first place? Right. Mm -hmm. And so philanthropy, although we are um, a sector that most folks feel warm and fuzzy about, we are the, the do-gooders, right? 
um, we're, we're, you know, inherently connected to uh, the 1% and capitalism and all of those things. So when you think about how wealth has been accumulated in the U.S., but absolutely globally in other places, um, colonization and that history of extraction and taking and hoarding um, and abusing people and the planet in the process has been a, a major uh, through line of how wealth has been accumulated. And so when you think about philanthropy and foundations, we are organizations that have been established as a result of that wealth, right? And and so um, where and how that money has been accumulated uh, through the years and the sort of the, the trauma that has been left behind um, is, is connected to us as institutions. Like that's something that we have to own. Um, I think you also, when you think about power and who has resources, when you look at who gets to make decisions about the wealth, who gets to manage, allocate and spend it and how it's invested, all of those different types of questions will quickly point to um, a small number of people who, for the vast majority, happen to be white folks who have been in the uh, in the position to um, to generate that wealth and to start these foundations um, and then to then fund other like-minded kinds of organizations. Um, when we look at where philanthropic capital and resources go in the U.S., we know that only about 8% of grants go to communities of color. And so for me, this is a fundamental um, data point around the injustice of it all. When you think of the history um, that people of color and indigenous folks have played in helping to accumulate wealth, whether it was by our choice or not, um, and now these foundations exist to benefit the wealthy and folks in their networks. We're receiving just very little benefit back in our communities from this wealth that's been generated in this country. So that's sort of like a, a small way that we see the colonial dynamics playing out in philanthropy. Yeah, I, I wanted to dig into that stat a bit. So the 8%, is that like all money going to, like, how, how is that determined, right? Is it like money that's specifically earmarked for communities of color is that's only 8% of total, but is it possible that money that is not specifically earmarked, but like just targets, you know, poverty or homelessness or formerly incarcerated people. And like, as a result has a disproportionate effect on communities of color. Yeah. I'll have to, I haven't looked at the research in a while. I'll have to like look back, they get really specific, but what I, what I do know is that the vast majority of giving that happens, uh, the, you know, the actual transaction uh, at play goes uh, to the issue of education. And by far, mm -hmm. that's going to universities um, that people's alma maters, right? So um, those are the types, when we look at data around philanthropy, we see vast amounts of money going to these uh, institutions that in themselves, you can begin to unpack in, in different ways, right? Their role in perpetuating dynamics of colonization. Um, we also know that people give to their faith institutions. So uh, we are still very segregated around race when it comes to religion in this country. Um, we see um, major arts institutions, right, that um, have large budgets and have mostly members from affluent white communities. So um, the small amount of money that's going to communities of color, if I recall off the top of my head, it was it was um, that research was led by the um, a group called PRE, which is the Philanthropic Initiative for Racial Equity. And if I remember correctly, it was a pretty 
general definition of how they coded that data. It was it was grants that were going to communities of color. We don't know that these were organizations led by people of color, which is a whole nother layer, right? We have mm-hmm. a lot of nonprofits, especially in the NGO space, um, that some folks would say, and I would probably agree in some cases that those large national NGOs may be like perpetuating colonialism in their own way. Um, but the, the organizations that are actually accountable to community um, ingrained in community and led by people from those communities just make up probably a smaller percentage of that 8% that we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And, and given that I think the United States is like something like 35% of the country uh, is non-white broadly construed. And then, if you look at like wealth inequality, um, you would expect that any kind of like need-based programs uh, to be disproportionately going to- towards communities of color. Um, so it's kind of like the opposite way you'd expect it to cut if things were distributed in like anything approaching a just way. Absolutely. Um, obviously that restricts your analysis to like within a country, which I definitely want to get to like in the back half of the conversation. Um, but yeah, I, and I think um it would be really helpful just to hear some like of the personal examples uh, that you experienced, like that kind of like led you along this journey. Um, I, I found those to be pretty striking. Yeah. You know, I, um, I got politicized somewhere along the way when I, when I first started working at a foundation, I, you know, and I've had a fantastic career, so I don't, I don't want to completely paint a, a bleak picture, but when I started working in philanthropy, all of a sudden, you know, being who I was and from where I was, I was uh, in this whole new world. Um, and it's, it's kind of like, um, it's so weird. I always like use references from the Titanic, which are, uh, which is really dates me, but, um, I used to be obsessed with that movie when I was a kid or a young person. So it like pops in my mind, but like, we've all seen the movie and like, you know, imagine like if I were Jack and I would have married Rose and you, you're, you enter a new space where there, uh, there's a forced assimilation of like, uh, of how you show up and the rules that you must follow spoken and unspoken. And so I found myself kind of in that place and to be honest with you, you know, I, I did enjoy some of the perks of it, right? Like I was getting paid a nice salary. Um, I had uh, resources to, to buy a house and, um, you know, I got invited to the cool parties, right? So it was like, um, there's a lot of benefit that I that I felt as a person who had not had power in the past. All of a sudden I had this assumed power by being um, a funder. And, you know, but what I begin to understand at some point in time, there's a lot happening under the roof of a foundation that even I wasn't privy to, right? Like, in a lot of cases, when you work at a foundation, especially on the program side of the house where you have a relationship with community, you're moving resources. It's a really feel-good job, right? And you're moving money. It's, it's good work. It's hard to, like, say that any grant is a bad grant, right? Like, all of these organizations need to be resourced and we can bring an equity lens to that and like dissect like, well, not enough money is going to communities of color and all of that. But what's really happening um, under the roof of a foundation that a lot of people don't know or understand is that the vast majority of philanthropic resources are actually not going out to the community, but they're invested in wall street. Um, there is a, a policy um, there's legisl- legislation that was uh, uh, created in, uh, I believe, initially in the 60s, but then was revisited in the 70s, 
um, to create a minimum payout role to force private foundations to actually put money in the community um, because foundations were being started. There was a major tax write-off for the wealthy, and then the resources actually had zero public benefit. They were just being held um, in banks or invested in private industry. And so that's where um, I more and more I begin to get politicized when I begin to say, well, we have this money we're making grants and these grants are great. But what's happening with that like seven hundred million dollars that's in our endowment and um, those staff or those consultants or wealth managers that that manage those investments are often not in the same building with you. Um, and you're not allowed to like really ask questions about it. And it's kept totally separate. So I begin to see there were like things where there was information and like questions that were like taboo to ask, which of course made me want to like ask them and like dig more into it. Um, and, and I just gradually got more like politicized because I, like most people, I want to get up every day go to work and just feel like I'm making a difference in the world. And if I'm working at an organization that is doing good work, but the same organization actually has investments um, in like harmful and extractive industries that are harming the very communities I'm trying to help, it just doesn't make sense to me or add up. And so I'm pushing us as an industry to be honest about that. Like if we're trying to do good with our left hand and our right hand is over here canceling that out, what is the net value of philanthropy? If we're ultimately not making a, a net positive difference communities, then maybe we don't need to exist. And mm-hmm. I know good work is happening and there is a positive impact, but there's also a lot of things happening under the surface that we don't see or understand that we need to um, actually have transparency and accountability about. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so I guess like the argument for an, investing in like managing a fund or an endowment is like you can sustain a program over a longer period of time. Um, and like, let's set aside the question of moral investments or like the impact of your investing. You you could see an argument where like, well, there's some way to calculate the social rate of return on any kind of like direct contributions to the community in the form of grants or, or whatever else your foundation is doing. And then there's like the stock market rate of return that you could expect to be like, you know, seven, eight percent after inflation. Um, and so maybe you think like it actually makes sense to invest um, and then you'll have better opportunities down the line. But it sounds like people are more thinking about it just like I'm going to pay out five percent because like that's the minimum and that becomes like the norm in the in the industry. Absolutely. That is that is the minimum payout. And that requirement was intended to be the minimum, like when foundations were paying out zero. <laughs> um you know, that was meant to be the floor and that has become the ceiling. So it pushes me to like ask the question, like, what business are we really in? Are we in the grant making business um, or are we in the wealth building business or wealth accumulation business? You know, that 5% uh, is is something that when we pay that out, foundations feel really good about it. Like, oh, we met our payout requirements. Um, but in times like now where we're seeing like unprecedented like just crisis in communities, how can we feel good about like making that 5% payout um, under the premise, like, Oh, we need to like not spend all the money or more money than the 5% because we need to be around later in perpetuity. Um, You know, I think that that is a, a question that we need to like examine ourselves. Like, why do we feel like we need to be here forever? <laughs> mm-hmm. There will be more wealth in the future. There will be generosity in the future when we could be like moving like millions and billions of dollars into community right now, 
Um, but rather we feel the need to sit on those because we need to exist in perpetuity. Um, it's just really, um, uh, for me, like a hard concept to get my mind around. Um, I know that perpetuity and spending down foundations or sunsetting foundations is like complex or really simplifying it in some ways, but it goes back to the notion of like power and who holds power uh, over these resources and why do we feel like that we need to maintain that power in perpetuity versus liberating those resources and putting them into the hands of folks and community where the resources or decisions about those resources could be made in a more diplomatic um, or democratic, um, I should say, uh, way. Yeah. Yeah. There's some, I think you do some math and like if the organizations that exist now that are already foundations set up to just disperse money in the public interest um, were to actually spend like their full endowments. Um, you could make a lot of progress on things like the racial wealth gap or other like big systemic issues like poverty that people see as like, oh, this is kind of just always going to be with us. Um, and I mean, it's, it's my view that in a ideal world, like we don't have a job, you know, there's no need for um, nonprofits or like, philanthropy because social issues are solved um through like democratically controlled structures and uh in a way that like we're just plugging holes on like a ship right and and we should just like fix the ship absolutely you know i say that poverty um poverty poverty is the product of public policy and theft that has been facilitated by white supremacy that's my definition of poverty and so for me, that means that to eradicate poverty or to at least see like a major and uh, shift in, in what we, we're currently experiencing, one is going to take the right public policy. And that probably means like public policy that needs to be uh, put in place regarding foundations and philanthropic capital as well. Um, but there's also great policies that we could talk about, like universal basic income. Right. But it's public policy and theft. And that part of the equation is accounting for the historical uh, wealth that has been extracted from communities of color um, that folks often, as we were, as we started this conversation, um, are overlooking and not accounting for, right? Like the mindset of like pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and, you know, like why, why don't people just work hard or whatever? It's actually like uh, erasing the fact that wealth has existed in communities in the past and it was taken away. So for philanthropy, I often say that the best thing that we could be doing to really eradicate poverty is supporting organizing and advocacy that's really going to build community power for the right types of policies that we need in place. Um, and it's also um, about like just giving large amounts of capital back to communities of color. Right. Mm-hmm. And so like beyond strategic grant making and nice grants, like we just need to like take chunks of capital and hand them back over to communities. And um, in a way that is just um, sounds kind of radical and it is kind of radical to like imagine that. But I say that because in philanthropy for the 15 years I've been working in that, we get so obsessed with like good grant making and like strategic grant making. Uh, we have reinvented different terms for that through the years and how we look at metrics around grant making 
fully support that. There's a lot of ways we can improve grant making, but a good grant and like it alone is never going to get us to a place of eradicating poverty. And especially the way that we currently do grants in like one year or two year cycles, we need to like dig into the coffers of foundations and like hand money back over to communities. It's, it has happened since I've been saying it. I think it's possible, uh, but it's very terrifying for those of us who sit on top of those resources to kind of imagine letting letting them go. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just kind of like the incentives that institutions face, right? Like there, there are very few institutions that want to destroy themselves after they're created. Um, exactly. And they'll do a lot to just perpetuate themselves yeah, regardless it, of what the intention is. Um, I guess like something I, I, I'd kind of push on a little bit is um it if you look at like wealth levels across the world you know pre-colonial era it's hard to really know um and like estimating this stuff is like you're already putting a lot of values on on people but i think like pre-colonial america is like people are not like wealthy by like any like contemporary standard um so is your definition more of like a historically contingent fact rather than like a universal truth of poverty i really love that question actually um I it's I, I talk actually mostly around like hard dollars, like and then when we talk like like wealth in terms of money, just because mm-hmm. I work in the philanthropic sector. But I'm also I, I think of wealth as something much more broader. Um, money itself is like this tangible thing that's easy to measure, and um, you know who has it, who doesn't, how it flows through the world. It's 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 a, a piece of paper or a uh, piece of data that we can actually like hold. And it does represent so much. It represents so much, but there there is a lot more under that surface in terms of how we, um, you know, how we define wealth. Um, so it's sort of a both and. Um, I will say, sort of like one thing I've said, and I've heard um, my other indigenous colleagues kind of say as a part of advocacy campaigns, like it is about money, but it is also a mindset, right? It's like shifting a worldview around um, having a different type of relationship with other people and with the planet. And although we weren't sitting necessarily on like um, big bank accounts, maybe pre-colonial times, um, we didn't have a lot of the social issues that we have now. So pre-colonization, there wasn't a homeless problem in in native communities. Um, No one was going hungry. Um, And so the social issues that we're trying to solve now through philanthropic capital, uh, many of them are maybe none of them really existed um, in a different way of life with a different mindset where we put more value on people in the planet than we do uh, wealth and the accumulation of wealth. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I guess like this is uh, the quickly approaching the limits of my knowledge on this, but like, was that like universally true across like there's a ton of different tribes, right. That existed in the Americas and, I think there's like this risk of like essentializing like, Oh, like, you know, native communities use like every part of the Buffalo or whatever. And it's like, well, there's some that like ran them off of cliffs and like ate which ones that like they wanted to. And like, there's like this risk of like, yeah, just becoming somebody who's native, like all these traits are true about them or like the same of communities. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. There, there, uh, I, I shouldn't make any blanket statements. There are universal values that I think most indigenous people share, um, but so, you know, we have over 570 tribes in the U.S. and they are all very different. And yes, before colonization, tribes fought among themselves. Anywhere where there's people, there's going to be fighting. Um, some of that fighting was probably over resources. 
but there there absolutely has been uh, there there is sort of a shared worldview about um, people on the planet and of the um, the idea of philanthropy. I think from an indigenous worldview is something that I've found to be sort of universal in my conversations with with indigenous folks. Um, there are things that I found in writing the book, like certain traditions that have existed for many, many, many years um, in Native communities like the potlatch um, tradition that I talk about in the Northwest, um, which was a ceremony that uh, really um, sort of named the, the greatness of a leader in that community. You were you were an esteemed chief or a leader of your community based off the number of potlatch ceremonies you had. And what a potlatch ceremony was for folks listening who haven't had a chance to read the book was just um, really after the process of uh, of harvesting, whenever you um, had more than enough, you you shared with neighboring tribes. It was a potlatch ceremony. So this idea, there, there really hasn't been an idea that I've found in any of my research or conversations with historians that try any tribe existed that was like hoarding resources or like storing up you know um there there always has been a certain type of generosity um to that and you know i think it's kind of funny the term indian giver i've been thinking about lately because um you know if you're in the u.s you might have been called an indian giver when you're a kid if you gave somebody something you took something back but that actually that 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 concept actually does come from indigenous ways of like giving and receiving Mm -hmm. Um, when we give it's sort of this idea that a gift is going in perpetuity and that i will give to you if you need it now because i know that you will give to me later when i'm in need and so there is this like sort of universal sense of taking care of one another um that uh and and a sense of like having enough that that i find pretty universal across native communities that i think has always been there yeah yeah the potlatch is what jumped out to me as well when you were talking about that and uh it's just it's a cool concept and i guess like one of the theories i've read about like inequality is that it kind of only gets into like the scale at which we're talking about when you have very large civilizations where you know it's more than just like a few hundred people living in a tight-knit community um you now have like people owning huge amounts of resources that would otherwise be shared and lead to like massive accumulation of wealth. And then like, I'm just thinking of if there's like a equivalent of a potlatch in like contemporary philanthropy or among like wealthy people and people have so much money now, so much more than (laughs) everyone else that they can essentially do a potlatch at no cost to themselves and be seen as like the saving hero. And I think about this every time like Jeff Bezos makes like a hundred million dollar donation and it's like, cool dude. Like that's like, I don't know, not even a pizza for a regular person. Um, you have to look at the scale of like what you can give up. And and the thing about the potlatch that is different is like people know kind of like how much you have and you're sharing all of it when you have it um, rather than like giving scraps from like your massive pile of money. Absolutely. And these are folks, you know, that did not have, uh, they were given in that moment. I don't think they had, uh, uh, they were, you know, concerned about, oh, what if we don't have any next year? There's, there's a trust in the universe and in community that we're all going to be okay, that we're going to take care of each other. So when there's an immediate need, you respond to that. And um, how can we stand by and let anyone be hungry in this moment when we have more than enough to eat because we're concerned about like a year from now what we might be eating? So it's a different sort of interreliance, I think, on on each other as as human beings that you find in indigenous communities that I find to be 
really fascinating. And, um, you know, I'm aspiring to like take on that worldview as much as I can. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so I, I guess I kind of want to move on to like the second half of this, which is sort of like, I'm framing as like a challenge from like the effective altruism worldview. Um, so I'll just start off with like asking like, how familiar are you with the the concepts of effective altruism? Um, relatively. Okay, cool. And I, I can state them for a listener who might not be aware. Um, I think like the, the core idea is like this sense of impartiality between your, yourself and everybody else who exists. And, and a lot of people within effective altruism or EA don't limit that to just human beings. Um, they also include like non-human animals in that consideration. Um, and the roots of it are kind of like this idea from Peter Singer, which is like, if you have extra money to give um, and there are people dying because of deprivation, um, then you should give up your money until you are giving up something of comparable moral importance to the person that you would be helping. Um, so like less abstractly, uh, the Against Malaria Foundation distributes anti-malarial bed nets. Um, and for every like $2,000 of nets they distribute, a child's life is saved. Um, it's unlikely that like me or the person listening to this is spending like their extra $2,000 in a way of like comparable moral significance. Um, and it's kind of like really hard to justify along like basic ethical grounds, uh, that way of spending your money. Um, and so it's this like really firm challenge to donate a lot more of your money, uh, dedicate your time to high impact causes. Um, and, and one of the really big implications of effective altruism with respect to like traditional philanthropy is that if you're donating to causes in the United States, you're almost certainly not donating to the most effective um, thing you could be just because like the United States is one of the richest countries in the world. There's extreme deprivation here. There are people greatly suffering and in very serious need. And like you can never minimize that, but the levels of poverty, the, the depth of it and the extent and the relative like cost of alleviating it is just much, much greater um, in sub-Saharan Africa, for example. Like most, almost everybody who's living in extreme poverty now lives in sub-Saharan Africa. And so if you have the choice between giving to an organization that does work in um, in the Bronx or in Kenya, like the organization in Kenya, all else equal, will like go further because the dollar goes further because the needs are greater. Um and so I guess like I was thinking about this like when reading the book because I think the book makes like a ton of important points and is like this really essential critique of, of philanthropy as it exists, but like it seems to mostly limit things to the United States. And so I guess I would just like ask you like what why that is and like if you think that the call to go like donate to Sub-Saharan Africa is, is um, I mean, it's certainly a continent that has seen colonization and, and been ravaged by it as well. And a lot of the poverty and deprivation that exists there is a result of, of a lot of the same forces you're talking about. Yeah, I guess a couple of thoughts. I mean, one, I absolutely support the idea of focusing at the margins um, and investing. You know, I, I talk about money being medicine, and I think we should be moving the medicine or the money to where the hurt is the worst in the world. And, um, and so I absolutely support prioritizing those communities in our investments. Um, in the U.S. Um, landscape, I um, often uh, most of my work is really helping funders think about bringing a racial equity lens to their work and 
to really prioritize communities of color and making the case that, you know, for example, I'll use sort of the Me Too movement, right? There's a lot of funds right now focused on women and girls, which is fantastic, right? Um, some of those funds are reluctant for whatever reasons to like to like explicitly focus on like girls of color or to like even say, especially women of color, um, because they are focused on women. And um, and so but, you know, the exercise with those kinds of donors is to really like understand that if you prioritize or center women of color in your strategies and where you're funding, you're going to help all women. If you exclude race and fund it in a race-neutral way, some of your impact may not include women of color. And so um, so sort of like focusing on places is in certain populations, I, I support that. Um, it's A lot of it is the how, like how are we supporting communities in a way that um, really is about self-determination. I think the critique you see around like international funding in places like Africa um, it's it's because the funding comes with a whole set of like stuff behind it, right? Like yeah. ideology, and um, it's not really it's 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 bringing a, a different way of life uh, to communities that we esteem or think is a better way of life for these communities. So I think that's where um, some of the challenges in the international space. The last thing I'll say about altruism, like I don't love that word for. Because for, for me, I think of altruism as this very like linear concept that is like moving in one direction and it perpetuates the idea of like the haves and the have nots in, in some way. So the, the idea that um, the word that I think about in terms of giving and direction is more about reciprocity and it's, it's really about being in a relationship with folks so that uh, we're not just uh, there's no other us versus them or haves or have nots. It's really um, about giving to someone um, and because I know that we're in a relationship and they would take care of me. It's not as, as opposed to like a one off kind of situation. Yeah. 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 I, I was just looking at that quote from the book. Um, and yeah, altruism implies like helping others. Right. So it, it is otherizing the the other party involved. Um kind of like in the name but i guess like i don't know if if i donate to uh, a family and like in kenya you know i i don't think it's reasonable for me to expect anything in return right so uh, not at all. Uh, yeah i guess like what does that look like in practice when the world is just so big and uh distances are kind of like flattened in the ways that like i can get money to people very easily overseas but like it's very unlikely that i'll ever interact with them um and i would never want to like I don't know, meet somebody and then have them be like very in debt or grateful to me. Like it just seems like this weird relationship that I'd rather just like help them because it's the right thing to do and like not worry so much about like if they're going to ever do anything for me in return. No, I actually love that idea of like not expecting. I mean, I think that that's where I, I talk about liberating capital, that we should cut those strings and not have those expectations from groups. Um, I've had people ask me when I say things like, um, you know, oh, a foundation should take 10% of its endowment and just hand it over to to uh, black the black community. You know, the questions come up, well, how will we know if they're effective? How will we measure this and a third? I think, uh, I think having the no strings attached just transference of, uh, of money, um, you know, in a, a general supportive way is like fantastic. Where, um, where the problems get in is like who is receiving that money. So if that money is going directly into the hands of, folks in Africa who have this self-determination to use it however they want 
to improve their communities or improve their way of life, I support that wholeheartedly. If the money ends up in an organization who then is like forcing some type of assimilation, um, who is forcing some theory of change that may not be what the community wants, that's where you see those colonial dynamics coming uh, to play where things may get a little problematic. Totally. Yeah. I, it's, it's funny because you're almost perfectly describing give directly, um, the organization where I work and like we do unconditional cash transfers. Um, so no strings attached. Um, we just target people who are living in extreme poverty, uh, as our core operations, we've been doing coronavirus relief efforts in the United States and Africa as well. Um, and it is something that like, you know, uh, we read the book at the organization and like it was Definitely, there's things that we recognize recognized in the book about us and like about the organiz- or the uh, industry more broadly. But in general, I actually felt like good about it because one of the framings of how we think about our work is, you know, in almost all giving, the donor is deciding what the recipient needs, um, and we kind of have a, have a joke, which is like not everyone needs a goat, um, and it's like you're assuming some knowledge that. Um, you know, may be true, may, may not be. And like, it's just rare that you're going to figure out exactly what everybody needs for them. And people have like a lot of local knowledge and it's just respecting their autonomy as well. Um, and I think there's like philosophical reasons to do that. There's also like practical reasons, which is like, you know, they're going to spend it more efficiently. They're going to invest in things that you would never think to invest in because you live in New York and like, just have no idea what it's like to live as like a, a farmer in, in East Africa. Um, and and I think like there's a quote from the the book which is um, talking about effectively moving money to where the hurt is worst as you said um, using money as medicine requires the funder to have deep authentic knowledge of the issues and communities that will be putting the fund funding to use and deep authentic knowledge does not come from reading statistics reports or articles it doesn't even come from a site visit to that community or interviewing someone from the affected community it comes from living inside that community and experiencing that issue for oneself period and so like this is kind of the ultimate version of that right like just putting the money in the hands of the people who need it the most no actually i really love it um you know as a, a native person in the u.s i can speak from that experience of you know, I get calls literally every day from uh, donation from from donors and from foundations who want to support Indian country. And um, but where we get stuck is that often folks like me and others running native nonprofits and uh, native movement work is we call it Indian one on one. Like we are stuck in this place of having to educate, and educate and educate. Um, and then, you know, funders, more, most funders, not like you all, um, have some type of agenda, right? So even with COVID-19 response, where we have this fund we've launched, I've had funders to say, well, you know, we can give you some money, but I need to know that these funds are going to go to LGBT uh, organizations. And I'm like, I'm sorry, in the middle of this, like, global crisis, I don't have time to, like, ask each person their sexuality as they're picking up a bag of food. You know what I mean? Like, it's yeah. like... Yeah. Like really, that's going to be the restraint. So, so there are just ways that you know, like what I often say to funders, like we want you to learn about native, con- uh, you know, communities. We we have pl- people in, in in place like me who are willing to do that work. But ultimately, we want you to just give the money to native people. We have intermediaries who already have those relationships who are being accountable to community and know have a sense of self-determination about how we want our communities to be and so it is just that blind trust like 
you know, vet those folks, of course, to make sure that they're legit and that they are accountable to community or whatever, but just like move the money without like all of the strings attached. Um, yeah, that's, so I think there's a, a model for that type of charity that is just sort of moving. I mean, for me, that's like a, a case for reparations, right? Like one of the reasons that we don't have reparations in the U S is I think that, um, black folks have not been able to prove quotes, uh, you know, exactly how that money will be spent and answer all those questions that white folks have. Like the idea of just freely giving money to the black community with no strings attached to use for whatever purpose is like terrifying for folks, right? Who cares yeah. if someone goes and buys a six pack with some of their money? That's their their right to do that. But um, if we're not controlling sort of how resources are, are going, then a lot of folks get stuck in that process. So I really admire that you guys are like, hey, there's need there. Take this money and do with it whatever you need to do to improve your community. Totally. Yeah. And and one of the top like questions that are frequently asked questions um, is like the answer is like, no, they don't all spend it on booze and drugs. Um, and there's like a lot of research on this. And, um, you know, the empirical evidence just says like, no, like people actually know what they need and, and, and are making good investments uh, on the whole. And um it's, it's just really paternalistic. Um, and it is like a somewhat colonial mindset to say like, you know, you person who is like in poverty, like don't know what you need. And like, I think, I don't know, there's, I think about this in New York, you know, you pass like homelessness all the time and it's just, it's, it's one of the, just like really tough thing, um, to just be like so exposed to the level of deprivation that does exist here. And also just not feeling like you have like a good solution to it because, you know, I think there's things that make like the homeless population in New York like different um, in terms of like rates of like substance use disorder or something like that, where just giving somebody money in that situation like may actually not solve the problem. And and there are things that can't only be solved with money and, and we don't maintain that either. Um, but I, I think like in a large majority of cases, like people in poverty really will like spend the money on, on the things that will like help improve their lives. And like, Hey, if that's a six pack, that's a six pack. Like, you know, I don't think, um, we judge ourselves too harshly when we like buy some beers with our friends. And I think, uh, just having that respect for people's autonomy and choice is really important. And, there, and there's definitely a both and in there, right? Like I, I, I give money to the homeless man on the corner. Um, and you know, when I have cash in my pocket, just because I see there's an immediate need, and um, it feels good to do that. And I've seen many times them walk over here to Five Guys and buy uh, food with that money. But at the same time, I clearly understand that there's a systemic problem and we need to also be putting resources, um, you know, to work to change the system that is, um, you know, creating these these problems of homelessness in our, our community. So and there's no absolutes around it. I think um, it's. Um, you've read the book, so you probably see I talk about both and all the time because there really isn't like a, a right or a wrong in a, a lot of cases. It is helping people who are immediately in need. And right now with COVID-19, many foundations, including work that I do, has have kind of paused for a minute from like funding the system stuff because we need to like protect people in this moment. But it's mm-hmm. a both and. It's responding to what we see right in front of us, but also kind of what gives us the privilege of being funders is having that space to think about the system at the same time and where could we be deploying resources there to 
um, really diminish these problems in the long run. Totally, totally. Um, I just want to jump back to, to the quote I read a little while ago. Um, so I think I definitely agree with the spirit of it, but then I'm also thinking about other organizations that people in the effective altruism community like to fund. Um, the most, like the top recommended charity by GiveWell, a charity evaluator, is the Against Malaria Foundation. And it was kind of, I think, started in response to research showing that uh, anti-malarial bed nets are like a very, very cost-effective way to save children's lives. Um, you put it over the bed while you're sleeping, protects the kids from getting malaria, which is like one of the leading causes of mortality around the world. But when you charge for the nets, even if it's just like at cost or like a very nominal fee, um, people who need them don't buy them. Um, and the idea was just like distribute the nets for free and do it like as efficiently as possible. Um, and so this is a case where like there is this need that like was identified by um, like to some extent academic research um, and, and people working in the communities. And I don't think like the, the doctor or the researcher who went to these countries needed to have like the deep authentic knowledge of like living in that community to know that need was there. And, and so I guess I see that as kind of like a counterexample to, to that um, argument you're putting forward. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, I, I'm, I'm definitely am not uh, insinuating that foundations need to be like ATM machines and just like blindly distribute cash. Um, you know, we do have the opportunity to commission research and to hire people who have really deep knowledge of issue areas and that type of thing. Um, and we should put that knowledge to work. So it's, it's just really in the nuance of like engaging community in the right way. So around those mosquito nets, um, you know, I'm just trying to use that analogy for a minute. Um, I think it is like really connecting with leaders in that community to uh, create buy-in and ownership around those solutions. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, and I would be remiss if we were to talk about all of this and not talk about capitalism. Um, so I guess... How do you think about um, the role of colonialism versus capitalism? They're deeply related, um, but I think a lot of leftists who are maybe more like class forward would look at the, look at the things you're calling colonialism. Say like, no, like the exploitation that's like built into like the wage labor system is a product of capitalism, um, which coincided with colonialism. But like the dominant force today is is actually just like the exploitation of having people own capital and then other people sell their labor. Sure. So um, it's uh, it's a very very challenging question. I um, I think that race is completely um, connected and baked into the system of capitalism, racism, I should say. Um, and it's hard to imagine a different system that is um, does not have racism <laughs> because we've never had it. Um, I often think I agree with Malcolm X, who said that you can't have capitalism without racism. When you look at how the economic system of the U.S. was started from day one, from, you know, it was built on, you know, slavery as the core industry of this country and um, building an economic system that grew off of harming um, and people and exploiting communities. So. So it's hard. Um, they're they're just so intertwined. Um, I feel like for myself as a a person of color who like understands that, 
I still struggle to just imagine a different system because this is all I've ever known. And although it's it's imperfect and riddled with racism, um, I have, um, you know, internalized capitalism probably to some extent on my own and learned to like manipulate the system to like be okay. Um, and it's unfortunate that that's the situation I have to find myself in to survive. But it's it's I think this question is one that I've talked with a lot of movement leaders and activists about. And it's hard. Uh, you know, there are folks who are like burn the system down, like we need a whole new system. And then there are people who are more um, in favor of incremental change. And I think that's where I find myself. Um I know that in uh, the way that I see incremental change happening is one, we have to com- continue to dismantle white supremacy and uh, really fight racism that shows up in our economic system, but just everywhere across the board. And I think like, look for, look for those policies that would take us a step closer. Um, the system is people and the people is the system. So I think our system is always going to be imperfect. Um, and um Socialism is not perfect. They're all imperfect. Um, it's a step in a direction more that aligns with my values. I think. I, I think. I think that healthcare is a human right. Access to quality public education should be a human right. Um, and so, um, so yeah, I, I stumble with this question because it's it's hard for me to to separate the two. I think they are connected, um, but racism kind of stands on its own outside of the economic system. But the economic system is an interesting place to, it's where you see it like most prevalent, right? Because it does go back to colonization and slavery. Like racism was the, the, the fuel, <laughs> like the, the fuel behind like earning this money, like it by like uh, dehumanizing bodies and people, we, we built this economy. So I can't imagine a capitalism that actually exists without it. Yeah. No, I, there's a lot there. Um, I think, I think, I mean, it, it was a big question. Um, yeah, historically it's definitely been true that like racism has been employed by the ruling class to divide, uh, the white working class and, and typically the black working class or, or slaves in the United States, um, in a effort to just like perpetuate unjust systems. And the reality is that like the entire working class of, of all races has everything to gain, uh, by working together. Um, to demand more and, and a restructuring of society. Um, but I also, I do think that like, there's a world in which capitalism, like the modern corporation, I don't think depends on the specifics, but I don't know if they have like an interest in perpetuating racism because they, they kind of want like replaceable, um, kind of cogs, right? Like, uh, undifferentiated workers who can, just be inputs and you can get more efficiencies out of them and, and wring higher profits um, out of the system. And like, yeah, maybe if you're in a factory and you've got like a, a diversity of races in the workforce and they're trying to unionize, you could like play into like racial animus. And that's a way in which like racism and capitalism do go like hand in glove. Um, but like broadly on the whole, I think that an organization like Goldman Sachs, uh, I think their commitment to like anti-racism is probably real because it doesn't like continuing racism doesn't like necessarily make them more profitable, but like Goldman Sachs continuing to exist and just having like a, uh, perfect representation of the United States along like racial and sexual orientation and gender lines, 
I don't think, and they still operate otherwise, like very similarly to how they do now. I don't think like solves a, a really big part of the problem, which is that, um, you know, they're, I guess, what does it mean to have like a not racist Goldman Sachs if like they're doing like subprime loans or something and like selling those that are disproportionately affecting uh, black people in America or natives or whatever. Um, it's, it's really hard to disentangle the two. And I, I think a lot of the reforms kind of like work together. Um, and I'm reminded of like Hillary Clinton saying in 2016, like breaking up the banks won't solve racism. Um, and it's like, well, no one policy would, but like if you actually look at how finance is practiced in the United States, like it is actually deeply tied to, to racism and, and has like disproportionately disproportionate harms to communities of color. Um, and so, yeah, I, I don't, think we're really facing any choices where it's like oh we have to do the the not racist thing or we have to do like the not capitalist thing um or the anti-capitalist thing and like yeah i i think there's just opportunities where one is maybe dominating over the other um like the dakota pipeline um protests you know it was like anti-capitalist and anti-racist at the same time um and yeah i i I share like some of your hesitation about like what what could come next um but I, I do think at least social democratic reforms of the type that like Bernie Sanders was talking about, like to me, that is incremental. Um, like incrementalism, I think is used as like a dirty word, but really like single payer healthcare in the United States is like an incremental step on the road to like a full nationalized healthcare system like they have in, in Britain. Um, and like a revolutionary change is like completely abolishing, you know, markets or private ownership of uh, property or, or whatever. And like, that's, that's something where, I'm less confident in, in the, um, prescription, but, uh, there's like a direction, which is like taking essential human needs out of the market, um, and, and doing so in a way that's conscious to historical and contemporary, uh, racial inequity. Yeah. Yeah. I I guess if you're, if you were to try to quantify the effects of racism, you could look at things like hate crimes or like bias incidents, you know, like let's say on a kind of college campus or something, but the, I think the deepest effect is just, yeah, the economic effect that the racial wealth gap really just captures like, the severity of like all these interlocking effects that have happened over centuries um, and the effects of which just persist to this day. Um, and I think you, you drive that home and it's like definitely in line with like a left-wing analysis, which is focusing on the material conditions that people find themselves in, which are clearly biased along racial lines. Um, cool. Well, I, have to run shortly but um edgar i always finish with asking people what they would ask the listener to do um obviously read the book uh i think it was a a good read i think it's very provocative um especially as somebody working in the sector but even if you're not i think philanthropy affects our lives uh in ways obvious and subtle and uh i think it's like a really important call to change for the the community and the industry um, but anything else you would ask the listeners to do? Yeah, I, I think the the message in the book is so much broader than philanthropy in terms of really um, shifting our worldview to um, to understand that we are inherently connected. You know, this idea of all my relations and native communities uh, will really change who we are and who how we show up in leadership across any sector. I would ask people to check out our website, decolonizingwealth.com. Um, one thing beyond the book, we do offer um, free resources on the website. Um, but another opportunity is to join our giving circle. It's called Liberated Capital. 
Um, it's relatively new. It just started late last year. We're already growing. I think we have about 70 members now. Um, currently, we're focusing on the COVID response uh, in Native communities. Um, so it's an opportunity to give, but not just donate, but we're inviting people to be a part of a circle. We're going to be curating programming and conversations um, about racial healing. Um, so we're going to be uh, giving, but also being in community together. It takes all of us to have these hard conversations, um, regardless of our race or class. So to really get to the place and uh, that we want to be as a community. So I invite people to check that out. Cool. I'll include links to both in the show notes. Um, Edgar, this has been a fun conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. All right. You too. Take care of yourself. This has been The Most Interesting People I Know. If you enjoy this show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. This helps new people find the podcast and validates my self-worth. If you don't enjoy the show, please keep your thoughts to yourself or email me at mostinterestingpeople27 at gmail.com. Music is by me. Podcast design is by Jacob Babrowitz.